from the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. All right, I've titled this, uh, Is Self-Improvement Christian? Or Is Self-Actualization Christian? I, I have been joking with you guys. I often like to come up with an, uh, an, an interesting opening line, and sometimes I just can't come up with any. And then sometimes I come up with two, and I can't decide which ones to go with. So let me read a few of them. Uh, did Peter strive for a better deadlift? Who knows what a deadlift is? Anyone? It's where there's a big bar on the ground with weights on it. You know, some big burly guy picks the whole thing up. All right, so did Peter strive for a better deadlift? Did Paul commit to maxing out his 401k match contribution? (laughs) Did David commit to practicing the liar for one hour per day? Now, these questions sound funny because they're jarring. Now, if I said that I wanted to get stronger or I wanted to be wiser about my 401k contributions, or if I wanted to improve in some goal like music or whatever else, it would sound normal enough But when you hear it from these biblical characters, it's just automatically funny. It's automatically jarring. Why? It's because your ears know what your heart does not, and that the New Testament characters are not like us. They're not like you. The reason it's jarring is that they did not think like that. They didn't think how we think, right? So it'd be normal for us, and we recognize the strangeness of talking about them like that. But we've never maybe made that pair of saying, that's just not how they thought. They were not thinking about this self-actualization and how to make the most out of every little nook and cranny of their time. So a modern Westerner, us here, even though though we're Christians, we take more from our, our worldview comes just broadly from our society. And the way that we think is we start with the self, Like the self is the anchor of all of our existence, right? We start with the self, and then we kind of go out in in concentric circles from there. And so New Testament Christians, they did not see themselves as the anchor. They saw God as the sort of fixed stance, as the anchor, right? Whereas we often come from a perspective of ourselves being the sort of pedestal that we're standing on as we examine the world. And so it's really easy for us to become consumed with self-improvement or self-actualization. It's that sort of myth that uh, if you somehow use your time just a little better, maybe you could answer a few more emails before you go to the grave, right? Maybe you could produce a few more original works, whatever you're your production, your creativity is. Productivity to a modern person, not in other societies so much, but to a modern Westerner, we feel like we have accomplished something good in the day if we can say that the day was productive, right? We got things checked off of our to-do list. You know, if we, if we uh, like I said, answer more emails, make more plans, clean more things, whatever it might be, make more widgets, <laughs> a bit more deep work, well, then what, right? So it's almost like we're, we're satisfied in the act of doing the work. I mean, we don't really know why. Now, I'm not saying we should be lazy and not do work, but it's sort of like we find our meaning in getting the things done. There's a whole movement called the GTD movement. Have you guys heard of this? The getting things done work, like thing in, in the work space. Um, but it's like if we do it, we act like we'll achieve immortality, but we know it all too well that maybe we'll get a bit more done, but it won't make a very big difference on our lives. But what does scripture actually have to say? What are we made for? Is it to get 25% more things done with the time that we have? What actually is the good life in scripture? 
what does it mean to become as actualized, as fulfilled as possible in Scripture? Is it spending as much time as possible in what we are uniquely talented in? That's what all the productivity uh, and productivity literature and books on calling and leadership, it's all about trying to get rid of as much extraneous stuff so that you can do the one thing you are uniquely gifted at. But the New Testament does not show an ounce of this kind of careerism as this production as your calling in life. The Bible consistently refers to human beings as a blade of grass in a field or a flower in a field or a vapor of water, something that's here today and gone tomorrow. Isaiah 40 says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. So it's talking about humans as the grass and the flowers. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Jesus says, uh, believers who are poor, no, this is, um, this is James here. I, I lost my uh, citation here. This is James 1. Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. Man, if I could put this on the walls of every Fortune 500 company as you walk in the door. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. In the ESV, it says the rich will fade away in the midst of their pursuits. The Bible consistently honors human life and elevates it as us being made in the image of God and us being of, of infinite value. But it also really cuts us down for our own, to our own taste. It cuts us down and diminishes us in terms of our purpose. The Bible is very aware that we are this vapor, we are this flower, that we're, we're infinitely valuable in the image of God because it's God's image. But we are not very valuable in terms of our own potential to change or to influence this world around us. The Bible is aware that we will be forgotten and that we are called to, faith, to be faithful to God, to worship him, to serve God's people, to serve the poor, to serve our families, and then to pass on, largely forgotten. I've said this a few times in my preaching ministry here, uh, so some of you might remember it, but uh, there's not, I, I remember taking a poll, there's not a single person here that can name all of their great-grandparents, right? So you have four biological grandparents, and you have then eight great-grandparents, you have 16 great-great-grandparents, and there's probably not a single person here that could name off the top of their head their own great-grandparents. And I say that, as a way to say that it won't be any different for you. A few generations down the line from you, your great-grandkids won't even know your name. You will be utterly forgotten <laughs> to, on the face of the earth, right? That is, and that's the, the, the appropriate biblical view of us. We are worth an infinite amount because of the image of God and Christ dying on the cross for us. But in terms of our influence, in terms of what the world likes to say, hey, you're going to matter and your name will be recorded in history, it won't. Uh, <laughs> unless you're the rare Einstein or Steve Jobs type, people won't remember your name. In the West, this hurts because we want to be the protagonist. We want to be the main character, but God is the main character. And we're just this passing vapor and fortunate enough to be on the field. I think of it like uh, if you're a, a member of like a really important college football team or something like that. I don't even know college football, but like Notre Dame, that's an important team, right? So like if you get to play on that team, 
even if you're not great. Like maybe you just hit the field for a few minutes and otherwise you're on the bench. The thing is, you're just this vapor. You're just this sort of passing vapor, but you got to be a part of this larger legacy, right? And in a very infinitesimal way, that's kind of the picture of the Christian life. God is the main character, right? So like you could say Notre Dame is like the, the institution, is the big deal. And you're just lucky to be able to be a part of it, right? Uh, and in the same way, in a much greater way, uh, God is the main character. And we're lucky just to have a few minutes on the field as a vapor. We can't be the protagonist. Now, it's hard to say this because this is preaching directly at the way that I see the world. Man, you want to, I read productivity books by the half dozen. Like, I love that stuff. I mean, I want to get stronger this year. You know, like, I want to get smarter this year. Like, I want to do all that stuff. So, like, don't, don't hear me as knocking hard work. You guys know that I have, like, a career and a half and then some. So, like, I, I do a lot with my time. So it doesn't mean that we don't strive and that we don't work hard. Um, you know, we know that we're saved by grace, but God also created us for good works in him. That's not why we're saved, but he created us to work hard. Uh, we are supposed to do all the things that we do as unto the Lord. Uh, one of the great things about the Protestant Reformation is that instead of it being like, hey, the priests matter and everyone else is just a street sweeper, in the Protestant Re- Reformation, they said, no, you can serve God just as effectively in your business as the priest can in administering the sacraments. It's about doing all your work as unto the Lord. And that's what like flipped the whole world upside down. Northern Europe was like, hey, I find meaning in my work. And Southern Europe's like, uh, I'm a nobody because I'm not a priest or a king or a noble. And within 100 years, Northern Europe had invented investment. They'd invented basically hospitals, um, capitalism, which, you know, for, for better or for worse, it certainly brought a lot of the human masses out of poverty. And so within 100 years of the Protestant Reformation, Northern Europe and Southern Europe had the same population. 100 years later, Northern Europe had four times the population because not as many people were dying because they had invented hospitals and medicine and they were like moving forward because they found dignity in their work. It wasn't just about being a priest or a noble. You could now be a doctor and find great meaning in that work. You could be a street sweeper is the famous example and find great meaning in that work. And once people start pushing and spending all this time working well and they're not spending that money they get on vices like, uh, you know, ladies or, or, or gentlemen of the night or alcohol or whatever else, when they're not just pouring all their money into earthly pleasures, they have all this money extra sitting around. They're like, well, maybe we should all pool our money and start a company. And that's when capitalism, this sort of investment, was born. And just anyway, the whole world changed from that. And that's largely part of sort of a Protestant outpouring. So I'm not knocking hard work or goals. We are to work as unto the Lord. But our meaning, this is the huge thing, and where we've lost it, it's where even Christians have really lost it. We are to work hard, but our value and our meaning is not to be found in our work. And I'm preaching to myself just as much. I mean, when I get an article published by Christianity Today, it is, it's sad how much my own estimation of myself changes, okay? And I'm very well aware of that. Like, I just, it's, that's a problem I'm dealing with. Like, so we, we measure ourselves by our production, by our worth, So we work hard as unto the Lord, but our meaning is not in that. Our meaning is not in our job or our accomplishments. Some of you know I taught world religions at Northwestern this last semester. In case you don't, didn't grow up here, Northwest, not the big Northwestern, like, whoa, Northwestern. It was a, there's a local Bible college uh, called Northwestern uh, that's not associated with the Northwestern in Illinois. Uh, But I taught world religions there, and it was really an honor. I really enjoyed it. 
Uh, and what's funny is I don't have a degree in world religions. I'm, I'm doing a PhD in intercultural studies, which is certainly adjacent, sort of missions-based. They call it intercultural studies, so if you want to go to Saudi Arabia afterward, they'll let you in because it doesn't say missions on your transcript. But I'm doing a PhD in, in, in missiology, essentially. Um, and uh, world religions is certainly close to that, but I wasn't a, an expert in it. But they asked me, they said, hey, you know, we need someone to teach this, and, and we know it's an interest what do you think? And I thought, well, that's a bit of a challenge, but that sounds fun. And then I can maybe do a sermon series as well on, on world religions, you know, Jesus among the world religions or something, which maybe we can do in a few weeks here. And so it'll all sort of work out in terms of uh, the time expenditure. Uh, and I was really shocked to start reading some of the sacred scriptures of the Eastern religions. Uh, I was shocked just how modern and how Western the Bhagavad Gita seemed, which is one of the principal, most read texts of Hinduism. And I couldn't believe just how Western it seemed. And then I realized, no, this book is not modern, and it's not Western. It's that the modern Westerners have become much more Eastern, right? Ever since the 60s and the 70s, the sexual revolution, and then the introduction of Eastern philosophy and thought, a lot of what you read in the productivity books and like the life calling books and the leadership stuff, all that out there, a lot of it is just basically sprinkling in Eastern religion into like historic, traditional Western capitalism. And that's why reading those Eastern religious books seems so familiar and so accessible to me because that's what I've been living in for my, my whole life. Um, it answers the kinds of questions. I realize that the Bhagavad Gita answered the kinds of questions that Westerners are asking all day long that I hadn't necessarily seen direct answers to in the New Testament. You can certainly theologize answers from the New Testament, but it wasn't speaking directly to that. And so uh, it scared me a bit even uh, just that that seemed like this ancient you know, Hindu book was just on such a similar wavelength as modern Westerners. And uh, the reason is because it spoke to the self. Um, I don't want to get too far ahead in my notes, but the New Testament is, is all about God and seeking after him and laying down yourself. It's, about, it's not so much about um, forgetting yourself, right, but about thinking about yourself less. Eastern religions are all about the self, right? It's about um, realizing that everything around you is corrupt. And I, so I'm not saying that this is true, but this is Eastern religions often share this idea that everything around you is corrupt and unreal. And the only real thing that sort of all is one and the only real thing is the self. So through karma and through meditation, they try to sort of they center themselves within themselves. Whereas the Christian experience in meditation is to forget the self and to focus on God. But it seemed to pair so well with the modern Western world because that's what people in our society do, right? They try to find meaning by finding themselves, right? Yeah, eat, pray, love, right? I'm just going like, to leave all of my responsibilities behind and just become a complete selfish hedonist. Not to tell you what I think about that book. Uh, I'm just going to move abroad and leave everything and seek after answers by finding myself, by like, dating strange men from around the world. Um, yeah. I won't, that's not in my notes, but man, that book, just, I could not believe it, how selfish that book was. Okay, uh, all right, get back to your notes, Jordan. Um, the modern world teaches us to always optimize and to achieve, to be fitter, to invest our time and money better, and to use the finite resources we have to infinitely have like more hacks in life. And, and in essence, the modern world is telling you to act more like a computer and then sitting back and laughing while you fail. Okay, so that's what the modern world, it sits back and says, you should be more like a computer. And then everyone laughs as you don't achieve that. So one small example, and this happens all over the place, but one small example is that um, 
you know, when I was young and single, I used to read, like, not, not a ton, but a decent amount for, for like, a non-book reviewer. I would read, like, maybe 25 or 30 books a year. And then, but then you get married, and then you have kids, and then you maybe start working harder or whatever, or, or do another degree, and the books per year number <laughs> just kept going down and down. And then I discovered audiobooks, right, when, like, instead of, like, having to pop a CD and eventually it got onto Audible on an app, and it just became easy all of a sudden to listen to audiobooks instead of a kind of a major pain. Um, and so I started listening to audiobooks, and I discovered there's this whole conversation online about, do you listen at 1x? Do you listen at the speed of the recording? Or do you increase it? Listen at 1.25 times, so it's 25% faster, you know, like if you can speed up the, the reading of it. Or 1.5, and there's some just crazy people out there who go up to 2x, and then it sounds like you're listening to a chipmunk the whole time. Like, I don't know how you could possibly listen to anything with respect when it sounds like a chipmunk the whole time. But I sort of, it's sort of like the forbidden fruit in the garden, right? Where I'm like, hmm, should I speed up the speed and sort of give up a part of my humanity in doing so by trying in the smallest, most pathetic way to mimic a computer and go just a little faster than a normal human pace here? And so I, I remember listening to a book at 1.25 and then 1.5 on a slow reader. Um, but it's just, it becomes this stressful thing because it's like, we're not in the matrix, right? You can't just plug something into the back of your head and just have terabytes of information just instantly there. Uh, but you can increase it just the slightest, most pathetic amount. And it's like the supercomputer is sitting back and just laughing at you, like, ha, 25% faster, huh? Like, I've got the whole Earth library right now. Uh, so that's what it seems like to be a modern Westerner is to want to have the productivity of a computer and then just watch the world around you sort of laugh as you fail. And that ultimately is a race to the bottom, and it's a losing race, because we are not computers, and we are not meant to live like that. I'll still probably keep listening at like 1.2x, just to, you know, kind of find a medium there. And once you do, man, is so, when you go back to one, you're like, man, these people are so slow. Uh, anyway, uh, Eastern religion, it's all about you. It's all about how the world is an illusion. We're all one. The universe is one. It's all Brahman. Um, the center of it all is you. Uh, through your actions, your karma, you can arrive at this kind of enlightenment or nirvana. And that's what it is to be a modern Westerner. But Jesus says nothing like this. He says nothing about self-actualization. He talks a lot about transformation, but not about our kind of self-actualization. So New Year's Eve resolutions, or sorry, New Year's resolutions uh, are about self-realization a lot of times in this Western sense. By the way, I saw a joke. This is reminding me because I have a NYE instead of New Year's. I have a New Year's Eve in here in my notes. And I saw a joke. It said, um, Bill Nye. Remember Bill Nye, the science guy? Uh, it says, uh, Bill Nye is actually short for uh, William New Year's Eve. <laughs> and I just thought, this is a dorky, dorky joke, but I appreciated it. And I was reminded of it here. Um, yeah, so New Year's resolutions, not New Year's Eve. New Year's resolutions are often about self-actualization or self-realization, about fulfilling your earthly talents to the utmost and getting that last little bit out of life, trying to emulate a computer and failing. But Christianity is about self-forgetfulness. It's about laying down one's rights and one's life. And following Christ is about loving God and loving others, not maximizing yourself. It's following Christ is loving God and loving others, not making yourself some sort of like almost demigod. So listen to this. I'm going to read just a few scriptures here. 
Listen to, to this and see if it sounds at all like it answers the question of the modern Westerner, if it sounds individualist, if it cares about you, or if it cares about others in your relationship with God. So I have a few selections here from the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Love your enemies. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Do you know there are, um, there are Jewish rabbis today that still talk about this, loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you? And they actually recognize that it came from... Of course, you know, Jews don't follow, non-Messianic Jews don't follow Jesus, but they recognize that this was introduced into Jewish teaching from Jesus himself. The idea of loving your, instead of following the Old Testament, sort of like love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, a lot of modern Jews will say that and they'll say, yeah, it actually it comes from Jesus. It's one of the ideas they like from him and reject the rest. Um, okay, so this clearly, it has nothing to do with your self-actualization. I mean, this is when someone wrongs you, give them more. Pray for them. Love your enemies. Man, if you want a wild New Year's resolution, pray for your enemies. Resolve to pray for the people that you hate or that you don't talk to anymore. Do that for a year. Oh, man. Warning. That should come with a warning sticker. If you want to become more like Christ, pray for your enemies. Dear God, you will change this year if you pray for your enemies. Um, next, Next scripture here. Listen to the Lord's Prayer, one of the most most repeated things, probably the most repeated thing across all of history, across all denominations in the Christian faith. He says, um, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So this does not sound like our prayers, right? Our prayers might spend 80% of the time praying about like our career or our family, our desires, our health, right? It's all us. Self, we start with the self and then concentric circles outward. But this, the whole framing is in reverence to God and his will. And then kind of as an afterthought, it's like, well, just give us what we need at least to stay alive while we're pursuing your kingdom and all of these other things. So think of it. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It means holy be your name. That's one of those few things that even modern translations won't dare go away from hallowed because it's like, it's so hallowed, right? Is that you, you have to keep that language even though it means holy. Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And it's like, well, you know, give us today our daily bread. It's not like make sure that we're having in a, you know, eternally compounding interest on our daily bread until we can retire young and be wealthy and do whatever we want. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with investing, of course. But it says just give us today our daily bread. Oh, and, and as that's happening, help us to forgive others so that you'll forgive us and keep us from evil. So that's what a Christian prayer, a Christian focus on life sounds like. It's not about make me the most self-actualized, best, you know, spender of time and money and fitness and diet and all the rest. It's about revering the Father and praying for his kingdom on earth. Our purpose is to enjoy God and to worship him. That's the, the first opening line of the Westminster Catechism it says, what is the chief end of man? And it says, to enjoy God, what is it? To enjoy God and something him forever. Do you know what, Chris? 
No, it's, not, it's close to, to enjoy God and worship him forever. I think that's what it is, yeah. Uh, <laughs> love your neighbor, not think of yourself poorly, but think of yourself less often, right? Just think less of yourself as you orient yourself toward others, toward the poor, toward God. Let me read this. If you struggle with anxiety, which every day in the West more people struggle with, we're actually the most anxious, most depressed generation in history. It's increasing even with Gen Z uh, coming up. Um, Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says, Sermon on the Mount again, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? I would just want to frame this as we're reading it. He's talking about the body, food, and clothes. So they were living in, a, in an ancient society that by our standards was remarkably poor compared to what we have today. So just here, as he's talking about clothes and food, we all take those things for granted. But think of the other things we're worrying about, you know, the mortgage, which neighborhood we're living in, what, what our retirement plan looks like, if our career is like just good or, or exceptional, right? That's what a lot of people here are dealing with. But it's a, it, it, it ties perfectly to their concerns here. Uh, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Let that be your life verse. If you struggle with worrying and anxiety, let that be your life verse this year. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? I mean, that alone, if you say, if you're starting to be anxious, and you say those 13 words or whatever it is, 10 words, if you call that verse out, it like cuts the anxiety in half. Uh, can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Okay, I'm continuing on here. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That might be a wise thing if you struggle with worrying and anxiety. I, I'm not, I don't particularly identify as like someone who struggles with anxiety, but certainly I worry. You know, to be a modern Westerner is to worry about things. And just opening up to Matthew 6 and reading that, it's just like a wash over your brain. Um, <laughs> I forgot that I'd written this in my notes, and my notes are like, you should resolve to read this every day if you struggle with worry. I'm like, oh, I just said this. Um, what does God want from us? Right? You see this in this passage. It's not to worry about our lives and our things and our careers. Certainly, he wants us to work hard, but not find our identity in those things. He wants us instead to seek his kingdom first and his righteousness. Right? As we love God, we love our neighbor, we love others, we love the poor, and these things will be added to us, these things that we worry about. What does God want from you to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly, to seek first his kingdom, to love your neighbor, to lay down your life, and revolutionarily to pray for your enemies? The first human being in history to say this, pray for your enemies. 
Jesus says almost nothing about self-actualization, that modern obsession, our obsession with making the most of our money, our talents. But the New Testament speaks of transformation on every page. If you want to lift a few more pounds this year than you could last year, Jesus invites you to move mountains. You want to save more money? That is wise. I certainly encourage that. But do remember at the same time that you cannot serve two masters, right? Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the thing. Work hard, but where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? So your treasure needs to be God while you work hard for his glory, rather than your treasure being the most actualized, productive, competent self. If you want to be influential in leadership and in business, and if you want people to follow you and like you, Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies, which again, will just explode your world if you do that this year. If anyone does take that on as a goal, I want to hear from you at the end of the year. If, if anyone's like, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pray for my enemies, you know, every day, but really, realistically, it's like three or four times a week. That's still good, right? If you do that, you get in touch with me in September or November or somewhere around there and just let me know. Let me know what it's done for your relationship with those people and then your overall relationship uh, with God and the world. If you want to spend your time more productively Jesus invites you to spend eternity not producing widgets or uh, intellectual content or responding to emails, that great purgatory of modern life, but he invites you to spend that eternity praising him. The kind of transformation he intends is not the kind of transformation we often wish for in our resolutions. Instead, he invites us to worship the living God, but we are busy trying to become these little demigods ourselves and then just pathetically failing along the way. Uh, when I was about 20, there was a guy that, um, a leader in the Navigators. I wasn't even a part of the Navigators, but I was sort of adjacent to them, and I went to some of their events. And there was this leader, I forget his name, uh, in the Navigators, and he said, you know, what, are you, what are you focusing on you know, in your scripture reading, in your devotions? What are, what are your goals for this coming year? And I said, you know, I'd really like to become more like David, uh, from you know, King David from the Bible. And I started listing off the attributions that David had, and I forget what they were, but I started listing off some of the, like, you know, the, the boldness or his prayer life or whatever. I, I just listed specific things. And this is, it was like one of those movie moments where normally people try to be dramatic like this and they just fall flat on their face or they just say things kind of more humbly and then you turn it into a drama later. But this is truly a, a, a movie moment where he cuts me off and he says, you're never going to become holy trying to become like David. He just, he cut me right off. You'll never become holy trying to become like David, trying to chase the attributes of David. He said, because David was not trying to become those things. David was trying to become nearer to God. He was trying to go after God. And the rest of it was just fragrance, right? The rest of it was the wake, right? He was, he was going after the ship, and the rest of it was just the ripples that follow after it. You cannot become like David by chasing the attributes, but you can chase the source. You can go after God himself, and you can pursue God individually, one-on-one, -on -one, and then those attributes will follow in their wake. It's not like it's wrong to think about it, but he just, he blew me away. Now, part of it is that I was maybe 20 at the time, but it was just so true that David went after God himself. He was the only person, certainly flawed, right? But he was the only person in scripture that was called a man after God's own heart, 
And that's the only thing. He was a man after God's own heart. He pursued God, and then the attributes, some of the things that I was wanting to emulate, those came as a byproduct, as a fragrance. C.S. Lewis says, aim at heaven, and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. So a lot of our modern self-actualization culture aims at earth, right? They want to make you more productive, more fit, uh, financially more sound, whatever, better leader. You aim at earth, you get nothing. But if you aim at heaven, if you aim at God, if you follow him, the earth gets thrown in along the way. Let me pray to close our time here. Father, we thank you for, uh, for your, your words, for your scripture. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to unlearn some of the, the water that we've been swimming in that we take for granted as normal or natural, this sort of self-centered, egotistical, self-anchored view about life. We pray that we would instead uh, be washed uh, by the water of your word, that we would learn to see the world from your worldview, from your perspective. Help us to uh, do justice and love mercy. Help us to walk humbly. Help us to care for the poor and for others and for you, and to think about ourselves less. Not to think less about ourselves, but help us to to be somewhat self-forgetful as we pursue your kingdom and your glory on earth. And then we pray, Lord, that the other things that we worry about, the things that we can tend to get anxious about, uh, the modern versions of body and clothes and um, whatever else, we pray that you would add those things to us as we go about seeking your kingdom. Uh, We thank you, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. dot